In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, trivia question for you. What won Best Picture in 1981? Chariots of Fire. Ah, right, right. Ian Charleston plays Eric Little, right, the runner from Scotland. Um, we lost this year Ben Cross, who played uh, Mr. Abrams. We lost this year Ian Holm, who played Sam Musabini, otherwise known as the Old Bilbo. Famous film, 1981, and, and I know some of you weren't even born in 1981. However, if you have not seen it, may a, may a cloud of shame and derision follow you all the days of your life. May you dream ugly thoughts of rotting haggis. It won Best Picture for a reason. It is, for those of you that are totally unaware of what I'm talking about, it follows the, the, the British, the, great, the, the, the track and field team from Great Britain um, and their participation in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And if you know that film at all, even if you haven't seen it, you've probably heard the one line that everybody quotes. It's Eric Little, the Scotsman, who's a Christian, who says, God made me for China, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. We all know that one. And if you just stop the film right there, that's why you go to the film. But you know, if you know that film, that there's a whole subtext, a whole crisis that's undergirding the entirety of that plot. And it has everything to do with what you're doing today. This thing that we call the Sabbath. And there's a bit of foreshadowing that occurs in Eric Little, who is a 20th century Christian, uh, a, a future missionary to China. He's part of the, the Church of Scotland, and therefore a good Presbyterian from which this church owes its heritage. And in the early 20th century, the Church of Scotland was known for a very high view of what we call the Sabbath, in which there was a great deal of attention given to what you do and what you do not do on the day of rest. And there's this wonderfully foreshadowing moment where he's on the Sabbath, they're walking home from church, and there's some kids playing a game called barrel ball. And he grabs the ball, and in his warm and winsome but firm way, and he goes, boys, you know this is the Sabbath, right? Right? I, I, I can't do Scottish, sorry. Um, if it's not Scottish, right. Uh, and he, he kind of says in his kindly way, look, there are things to be done on some days, but there are other things that are reserved for other days. And this is one of those things that he would argue is reserved for other days. Well, that's a wonderful moment, but it foreshadows another moment because inasmuch as he is the one that runs for God's pleasure, guess what happens? Well, the Olympics come around that he makes and he qualifies for, and then what happens? Well, here's where the principle that he's defending here in this scene early in the film comes to roost in a real live situation, and this is how it plays out. Did you not read the papers this morning? I had the whole program. The heats for the hundred are on the Sunday after the opening ceremony, the ceremonies and final a couple of days after. It's only a heat. Does it make all that difference? Yeah. Eric, I'm frightened for you. I'm frightened what it all might do to you. 
gonna dance. Yeah, Sunday. Sabbath's not a day for playing football, is it? It's an awful step you're taking, Little. The whole of Britain will be watching you. I don't know that they'll understand. I'm not sure that I understand. I'm not sure that I do either, sir. For the last three years, I've devoted myself to my running, just to be on this ship. I give up my rugby. My work has suffered. And I deeply hurt someone I hold very dear. Because I told myself, if I win, I win for God. And now I find myself sitting here, destroying all. But I have to. To run would be against God's law. He finds pleasure from the Lord in running. And yet in light of that, he feels himself convicted that he can't use that day that's set aside for the worship of the Lord to run. And you and I, we, we watch that. And if you see the film, I think there will always be a part of you that, and a part of me that goes, wow, what a man of conviction. And then there's another part of us we who live in late, modern, industrialized, Western civilization that looks at that and goes, dude, it's a race. We're all like the guy with the bow tie empty. I don't think I understand. What's the deal? Imagine if Eric Little walks by Panther Stadium in Charlotte later today. We, we respect the idea of his conviction, but we feel like, oh man, you are making too much out of this. We have been listening for several weeks now and will continue for several months further to listen to the gospel according to Mark. And each week we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And the thesis of the sermon today is actually borrowing from what you hear haunting his ears there from his own sister named Jenny who says, there's so much sprinting and starting, there's no place for standing still. But part of following him Part of following him is standing still. What does that mean? Why should you care? What difference does it make? We're going to listen to a passage in which Jesus is going to get into a scrum with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And we're going to consider this Sabbath from three angles. One, what's behind it? Secondly, what's it for? And then finally, what now? What's behind it? What's it for? What now? Hi. Our central text for today is found in Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never heard what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him, 
And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. So I won't pretend or won't assume that we all understand what's going on here in this passage. We're kind of dropped into a little uh, fight at the bike rack, right? The bike rack, three o'clock, bike rack, I'll meet you there, right? And then the teacher shows up like, what's going on here? Um, What is going on here? What is behind this little uh, intramural squabble between Jesus and the Pharisees? Because I'm sure as you hear that, as soon as, you know, as soon as I hear it again, there's a part of you that goes, oh my gosh, this is so ancient. What relevance does it have for you or in my condition? And it's a reasonable question because it's so inaccessible to us. You and I are not probably susceptible for thinking too highly of the Sabbath. If anything, we err on the other side of things. But what's really behind it? What is going on here for us to understand it? And that's why we have to kind of rewind the tape and, and figure out where do we first see the first tracks laid down about the, about the Sabbath. First one, Exodus chapter 20. You read this. Remember the Sabbath? Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within you. And why is this? What's behind it? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What's behind the Sabbath? Creation. God fashions all things in six days, whatever that means, and on the seventh day, he took a break, whatever that means. God, who is infinite, he pauses. You and I, who are finite, who get weary after mowing the lawn, it's probably worth the rest. We probably need something that even God chose to do in his own volition. Why? What's behind it? God resting. Now fast forward a few chapters or a few books in the Torah. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you hear almost the exact same directions about what to do and what not to do, but now you hear a slightly different motivation for why you didn't. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Exodus chapter 20. Why do we rest on the day? What's the Sabbath for? He rested, you should rest. Why else? You were once a slave. And it's worth taking time to remember about how he acted on your behalf to liberate you. So the Sabbath, look, this is not just about sort of decompressing from a long week. This is not just about helping all of those people that work at Chick-fil-A to get ready to say a thousand times tomorrow, my pleasure. Chick-fil-A? Right? All of that. Thank you, Kanye. 
It is more than that. The Sabbath day is about reconnecting with the storyline of your family. It is more than just pausing in rest to rest, rest your bones and your mind. Though it is that. It's not, it's not less than that, but it is more. Uh, any of you fans of This Is Us, like my family is, we're all preparing ourselves for the very last season in that whole storyline. You may know and remember from the first year that the family, on their way to Grandma's house on Thanksgiving, they got a blowout. And before there were cell phones... They had to walk 3.4 miles to a filling station in order to call grandma. They have a blowout on the car, and while they're on a phone call with mom, they have a blowout with mom, in which case the family says, I think we're just going to have Thanksgiving here at the Little Lodge. But that day marked them. That's their story. Such that every single Thanksgiving from that day forward, what does the family do? No matter how angry they are at each other, no matter what they do, no matter how full they might be, what do they do? They always take a hike of 3.4 miles. Every Thanksgiving. Because that rhythm became its own ritual that connected themselves to the storyline of their family. That's what the Sabbath is. It's not about a bunch of rules here about what you do or not do. That's an implication of the storyline that is the Sabbath. And until you and I understand that, until you and I see what's behind it, everything that you hear about what we should or shouldn't do will just sound like the religious HOA. We pull out our clipboards, our pins, and our binoculars, making sure you're doing it right. Friends, it's more than that. That's what's behind it. That's what we do with it. And that's from where all of the laws in the Old Testament about how to observe the Sabbath properly come from. What does it mean to rest? Cease from what? Cease how? I mean, there are some things that are vital for our existence. Do we stop everything? So what things can we stop? What things can we not stop? That's, that's behind the whole conversation. And that's what leads us to talk about where do, what's with the fight that Jesus is having with the Pharisees here? That's what's behind the Sabbath. Now, in knowing what's behind it, let's talk about what the Sabbath is for. And in, and in these two moments, these two scrums that happen back to back, I think we find two reasons, what the, or two purposes for the Sabbath. Let's, let's first talk about the, the first little scrum. What happens? Jesus and the posse, his disciples, it's the Sabbath, They've been out, they've been walking, they've been ministering, they've been teaching, they're whooped, they walk through a grain field, they start picking the um, grain from the grain field, not, not collecting it at all and, save it and selling it on Facebook Marketplace. They're just hungry. They just need a few grains. They're not trying to take advantage of the, of the farmer who, who raised that crop. They're just hungry. And somehow, the Pharisees have their binoculars out and notice what's going on. And they look at Jesus and they say, excuse me, that looks like an infraction. Now, where's that coming from? Old Testament law speaks of, on the Sabbath, you will not reap. And somehow, in the Pharisees' mind, these disciples picking grain, they equate that with reaping. Ha! You're doing it wrong! And so what does Jesus do in that moment? Jesus says, you boys, you know the law. Flip up on your Bibles or scroll, 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 or whatever, right? 
Do you not remember the moment when David and his buddies are on the run from Saul? Band on the run, right? They're on the run, and it's the Sabbath, and they're hungry. What's their only option? they got to duck into the temple. And what do they find there near the altar? What's called the bread of the presence. Now, what's that? All right, kids, here's four words. Santa, cookies, note, chimney. What does all four in common? You, you set out the cookies out of an act of gratitude for the generosity, and it's set aside for him. Cookies, note, chimney, Santa, right? The bread of the presence. Twelve loaves of bread representing all twelve tribes of Israel. What do they signify? Thanksgiving to God for his kindness to the twelve tribes of Israel. It's set apart for that And who's it for? The priesthood. Only they may eat of it. But on that day, with David on the run from King Saul, he and his friends who are on the run, they partake of the bread of the presence. And Jesus says in so many words, apparently there was no harm, no foul on that moment, so why are your knickers in a knot, Pharisees? What's going on? Why are you so concerned with us eating On the Sabbath, now look, to the Pharisees' credit, I know, it's always tempting to want to dunk on the Pharisees. They don't get it. They're so slow. To their credit, um, kids, some of you are on teams of any kind of thing, and on on the day of the meet, on the day of the match, on the day of the game, you might have this like pregame ritual, you know, the slaps, left, left, right, right, slap, slap, elbow, elbow, knee, right? And you you do that, and then if, if one of you does it wrong, left, left, right, knee, You did it wrong. We're going to lose now, right? It matters to you to get the pregame ritual warm-up right because if you do it wrong, you don't know what the consequences will be, right? I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious, right? Um, That's where you go. Sorry. The Pharisees, they remind ourselves, right? We're not just talking about a set of practices and proscriptions and prohibitions. We're talking about the storyline of our family. And we want to do that correctly. We want to do that reverently. We want to believe that, in fact, the Sabbath is holy because God says that it is. So I want to do it properly. So don't dunk on them so quickly. They are trying to do the right thing. But Jesus is saying, look, I know where you're coming from, but you are missing the forest for the trees. You have turned the Sabbath into putting together an end table from Ikea. Let's see, slot A. What does the O with the two dots on top mean? I don't know. How does all this fit together? Am I doing it wrong? And Jesus says, enough! You've turned the Sabbath into a matter of compliance and you've forgotten that it's first of all about receiving provision. It's about what it gives you. You don't work for the Sabbath. The Sabbath works for you. And you have forgotten in your attempt to be holy of what it is for. And so the question that you all and I have to ask to rescue this from what feels very ancient and very irrelevant is, so what's the point? What is the first purpose of the Sabbath? Is it that we are all supposed to walk over here to the, you know, the Ingalls garden and glean from what used to be the tomato rose? No. If you allow me to spiritualize what just happens there in the grain fields is this. This is what your Sabbath is for if you're here. It's for you to feed on the presence of God. That's what it's for, to feed 
on the presence of God, to hear that which is from him, that it might be persuasive to you by his spirit, and that you might be nourished by it by the time you leave here. That's what this is for. It's not for showing up. It's not, I love the coffee. I love when people pay for the coffee. Hint, hint. I love the coffee. I love the chat. But it's more than the coffee. You and I are here to be fed by the presence of God. Now that sounds so spiritual. What does that mean? You and I, on any given week, are bumping into questions that are the same questions for every human being, whether they believe in God or not, whether they ever darken the doorstep of this place or any church or not. And I'll give you two areas in which all of us are thinking about these days, no matter what your background is, that has everything to do with why we've come into this room to feed on the presence of God. Meaning and suffering. When it comes to meaning, you and I wonder a lot of times, does anything matter? Or is Freddie Mercury right? Nothing really matters. Everyone can see. Nothing really matters to me. Is that how this world is? Does anything have any consequence? We started this whole series borrowing from the true story of Franz Jägerstatter that was made into a film called A Hidden Life. And you see him make a series of choices that will cost him like nothing can. And at every step of the line, Terrence Malick makes sure that you all know what the subtext of the film is. Three or four people at different times ask Franz Jägerstatter, do you think anybody will remember what you're doing? Do you think anybody will ever care what you are doing? And at the very end of the film, there's a quote from the author George Eliot who writes this. I'll read it to you. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and with me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Why could that be true? It's not because George Eliot said so. It's not because Franz Jägerstatter is a life to which that idea points. It's because there's a God. And what is unseen is still seen. What is unheroic is still blessed and favored by the one who is and who has always been. There is meaning, irrespective about whether anybody sees it or whether you have any joy in it. It is seen because there is God, because he sees it. That's why there's meaning. The kids you raise, the neighbors you love, the work you do, the causes you champion, you may think, who cares? It's bearing no fruit. Friends, your meaning is not bound up with whether you are ever heralded or championed for it at all. There is meaning because there is God. And you come into this room to feed on the presence, on that truth, and not just on the meaning question, the suffering question. Suffering is everybody's lot. Now, it's unevenly felt. Some of you are suffering right now like none of us are. And maybe like none of us will. And it is inevitable when suffering comes that you and I snap to grid the question on our minds. Why? It's both natural and understandable 
But here's the thing. A lot of the times, the why question, there's two kinds of why questions. There's the capital W-Y, the grand purpose. That one, many times, is not accessible. It's not even clear. And even if it was, I'm not sure that it would take all the pain away. So there's the capital W-Y, but then there's also the, the lowercase y, the lowercase w. And I think when it comes to those kinds of purposes, those are accessible to us. And, and here's one, if I may venture it humbly. What faith ever grew when it didn't have to? There's no such thing as resilience and faith and trust apart from struggle. And at risk of being a little too rhapsodic about it, what, what tree in summer ever bloomed that refused to face the wind in winter? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, we got it handed to us. We were this close to death, but that moment taught us not to rely upon ourselves, but on the God who raised Jesus from the dead. It is so easy for me to say those to you from up here in the nice, well-air-conditioned environment. But when it comes to suffering, you live and are gathered in the name of a God who is not unacquainted with suffering. Thank God there are the Psalms. You will get knowing looks from the Psalms in the midst of your suffering. And if you will just believe that and feed on that possibility, it will nourish you. Why the Sabbath? To feed on the presence of God when it comes to questions of our own meaning and also our own suffering. We've come to feed here. It's not the only reason why we've come to here, though. Yes, to feed, but something else. And that something else we get from the other moment that happens right on the heels of the moment in the grain fields. Jesus gets into town, his disciples are with him, and what do they do? They duck into a synagogue. Time for a reading, for prayer, for worship. I don't know what. But as the story goes, there's a person there in the synagogue who has a shriveled, distorted, mangled hand. It's, it's practically a stump. And, and what's going on? The Pharisees have already got eyes on Jesus. They've al- they're already watching him. The CCTV is on and live. We're watching. Why? Because they want to see if he's going to break another Sabbath rule in their mind. Not only are they wondering if he will, they hope he will because then they have a pretext to go after him. And you know what? Jesus knows that, and he cuts to the chase, and he says, Sir, you with the rival hand, come here. He calls him forward, and instead of looking at the man, he looks at the Pharisees, and he says, Tell me something. Riddle me this, Batman. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? If you will watch the Gospel of Mark from here throughout the bit, you're going to notice that Jesus gets into these little verbal exchanges with people. I can't wait till we get to chapter 7 when he has the exchange with the Syrophoenician woman. That one goes on like for several minutes. This one dies as soon as he asks the question. Tell me, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Silence from the Pharisees. Nothing. Because they know they've got no case. And he is angered by, again, not seeing the forest for the trees. 
And so he says, show me your hand. And he heals that hand in a heartbeat. And the greatest irony of the whole passage is, what do the Pharisees do? They immediately take counsel with their theological enemies. They get together with the Herodians, the Libs. They want to get together with the Libs that they ordinarily want to own. And they get together and say, let's get together and find a way to take him out. The irony of it is they're looking at Jesus, getting scandalized by him doing good on the Sabbath, and then they break out to go do evil and harm against him. That's the irony. And Jesus is incensed by it. What do we take from that moment? What is the Sabbath for? Not only is it to feed on the presence of God, it is also to be, secondly, healed in and by the mercy of God. You have gathered in this room, whether you knew it or not, to be healed in and by the mercy of God. That too sounds so wonderful and too spiritual for its own good. What does that look like? We could come up with 10 different examples of what that is. Let me just give you two. The man with the shriveled hand. What could a hand do in a moment like that? It could, it could be a, it was like a stump. It could maybe, maybe push doors open, but that's it. Let me ask you, that's what a shriveled hand is. Do you know what a shriveled soul is? There's at least two places I know of in, in ours, yours and mine experience and with that, what a shriveled soul is like. And the first one is this. Is there ever redemption after regret? Are you nothing more than the worst thing you've ever done to borrow a line from Brian Stevenson? Are you most defined by the things that you regret, the failures that you've committed, the stuff that you can't do over, the time that you cannot get back, the choices that you can't undo? Is that it? Is that how you're to think of yourself? Is there a forgiveness? for the worst things and for the cumulative little things. Is there? There is. There is mercy. And that comes from the Lord on the basis of what his son has done. That forgiveness is what we've come into this room to be healed of. That's where our mercy is found. But while forgiveness is central, it is also not everything. We want to know that there is a forgiveness, but we also want to learn how to live in a way in which our existence can follow in one of two directions. And here's, here's where I want to borrow one more scene from Chariots of Fire. Eric Little, the Scotsman, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What Eric Little has behind his back is the pleasure of God. That's what pushes him. But Mr. Abrams, it's almost like he's the anti-Eric Little. The thing, that, the thing that animates most him is the fear of failure, the fear of losing. And I want to I show you this scene of him reckoning with the way he conceives of himself and of life. You're going to see the last couple seconds of him losing a race and then him grappling with the way he sees the world. So consider this. This is absolutely ridiculous. It's a race you've lost, not a relative. Nobody's dead. 
For goodness sake, snap out of it, Harold. You're behaving like a child. I lost. I know. I was there, remember, watching. to look for him. It's absolutely fundamental. You never look. He was ahead. There was nothing you could have done. He won fair and square. Well, that's that, Abrahams. Well, if you can't take a beating, perhaps it's for the best. I don't run to take beatings. I run to win. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we labored, rowed, and bullied for this. Day in, day out. You've seen us. Chuckled over us, I'll be bound. Out in all weathers. Madmen. And for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200. Then that paddock tricked me in the semi. And now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing. But now I'm almost too frightened to win. I've got ten seconds to justify my existence. Oh, my gosh. If Eric Little won or lost, he didn't care. He ran for the pleasure of God that was behind him. But Mr. Abrams, everything is riding on whether he wins. And that is a shriveled soul. Oh, there's nothing wrong with trying to win. There's nothing wrong with doing things excellently. There's nothing wrong with, with giving your best, your most, your best effort to all those things. But just as we saw at the beginning of the worship service, there's all sorts of things that you might try to rest in that cannot support your weight and was never intended to. And winning races is never one of those things. But friends, that's a movie, but I know yours and my life, there's all sorts of things that we can, we can exchange for winning races. There, are, there is stuff that you do, stuff that you give yourself to, either relationships or aspirations or jobs or whatever the case might be, that you feel like you've got to prove something by doing them to everyone's expectation. That's a shriveled soul when everything Every person, every aspiration you cling to is used for one purpose, that you might be able to find a way to justify your existence. You're in need of mercy to know that there is an existence that one might have that is justified having absolutely nothing to do with what you do with it. What can commend to you that there is a forgiveness that you may trust in and an existence that is not dependent about how well you did or whether you won. It depends on the who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because when he comes 
and clarifies for us not only what the Sabbath is, but then dies to give us a rest that is eternal. He secures for us both a forgiveness that we might rest in, but he justifies ourselves to the Lord. So that the rest of your life is not out trying to spend it, trying to prove to yourself that it is justifiable. What's a life worth? Ask the Lord. The one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why you've come to this room. It's not simply to take a break. It's to be fed by the presence of God and healed in the mercy of God. So, so what now? If you have never yielded to him, if you have never trusted in that rest that there is a meaning that he gives you that there is a way of suffering in which you know that you are not alone in which you may know of a forgiveness that is trustworthy and reliable and that you might know of an existence in which you belong to him belong to him at his work if you want that rest i invite you to yield unto that this day no time like the present But if that already describes you, if you have already yielded, then rather than you work for the Sabbath, I would encourage you to let the Sabbath work for you. And by that I mean letting the Sabbath work for you in the same way that you let a garden work for you. You cultivate it, but you don't bear the fruit. You tend it, but you're not what makes it grow. And that means really simple things, like preparing yourself for this day. Look, if you went to bed last night at 3 o'clock in the morning, one, I applaud that you're here, but you and I both know you are not at your top shape to be able to receive that which you need from this moment. Letting the Sabbath work for you is to prepare yourself in order to be here fully. It also means in preparation for this day, to get all the things that you got to do yesterday so that you can set aside time for what you need to do today. There is a little bit of an abstention, what you choose not to do this day, but do on other days. Not so much that you can sort of be proud of, look what I'm not doing today. That's not it. That's not it, Pharisee. You set aside the other things so that you can do the one thing needed, Mary so that you can attend to him, so that you can be fed by him, so that you can be healed in his mercy. And look, you're already doing that kind of. You've come. You're listening. And if I'm fortunate, you've learned something. But may I suggest maybe two wrinkles that you maybe are not as familiar with in your rhythms of trying to let the Sabbath work for you, and it's this. Look, when you go to a film and you're with friends, it's a pretty good bet that you walk to the car talking about what you just saw unless it was horrible and then what you say i can't believe i said that maybe you say that sometimes here but <laughs> you talk about it you talk about it you have to if you haven't found a space yet in what you do with the sabbath to talk with others about it i would encourage you to find that space not only should you talk about it there's a line from a British theologian named Austin Ferrer who said this, 
no Christian deserves his dogmas who does not pray them. And that's just the highfalutin way of saying, you've heard ideas today that suggested themselves as truth or as doctrine. Is there any point in which you plan this day to take what you've heard and to focus your mind until words come that lead to prayers unto him in response? Look, kids, you go to class, and class is not just lectures. It's not just reading. At some point, you've got to crystallize your thoughts and put it into an essay or give a presentation. It's no good unless you do that. Prayer is what keeps us honest and what allows us to be open with the Lord about, I don't get it, and I'm not at rest, and I need your help to rest in this. No one is worth his dogmas who does not pray them. Friends, on this day, I would ask you at some point maybe to start a new habit. That whatever this day has offered to you, whether in the form of feeding you by his presence or healing you in his mercy, to put those into words, even a few words. And yes, kids, I'm talking even to you. This day is for you. Let it work for you. Let's pray. Father, we're in need of mercy in all things. And we are in need of help by your Spirit to believe anything that we might have considered. And any number of things will compete for our attention or suggest to us its lack of necessity or maybe even to, to suggest to us that it's not true. And I pray your help even this afternoon to believe what is and that you would give us help to find rest for our souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, beloved, I hope that you would let some of your first words be with someone that you do not know before you depart here this day. And now go with these words of benediction from Colossians 3. When you work, work as though you have worked for the Lord. When you rest, rest in the sovereign grace of God. And when you celebrate, celebrate as a people with the greatest reason for joy and love and celebration. Go now in the grace and forgiveness of our Savior, and in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may the peace of our triune God be with you all. You're dismissed.